Uh, well, I'm gonna have to take that computer in because, uh, yeah, the battery's dying. It's no longer uh, supporting USB um, connectivity or anything like that. My microphone, nor my, uh, what do you call it, the camera is working anymore, which means it's just not, it's shutting down the computer. So the battery's in, tomorrow computer goes in, so uh, uh, the live stream might be a little bit different. My one thing, I'm using my live, uh, my app top, my app top, my iPad right now to uh, uh, live stream, and already it's reconnecting uh, things. It's it's not a very consistent um, connection, which is my issue. And then it doesn't want to record as well. Let's see. All right, you know what? We're going to end that, and we're just going to record it like that because. Uh, and you might wonder, like Steve, why do you need to record it? Well. For posterity, basically. So uh, the live stream will only be two minutes, and then I'll have to uh, redo the uh, upload later on. Anyway, um, this is actually one of the reasons why I started using an Ethernet cable. One, uh, sorry, let me back up. One of the things that has killed my computer, my laptop, is that I'm now plugging in two monitors, hard drives, an Ethernet cable, a microphone, and a uh, webcam or a cell phone camera into the system, and the battery was weak before, uh, so it's been weak for about a year. This new power demand has just sucked the the, the rest of the life out of it. So, uh, and the reason I was using an Ethernet cable was because it used to provide a better connection than the Wi-Fi. Now it's just shutting down. So uh, I think that if I don't um, yeah, the battery has to be replaced, and what they're going to do tomorrow, actually, it's going to take them a couple of days to do, but they will um, not only replace the battery, but they're going to replace the keyboard because it's soldered together, and they're like, oh, we'll do we'll do the keyboard for free, and the, the battery will be, uh, you know, it'll, it'll cost you 1300 RMB for the battery, and I'm like, yeah, no shit you're going to replace the keyboard because that version of the MacBook Everyone complained about the butterfly keys that you had on that thing. So I don't think there was one good thing ever said about this keyboard. Uh, luckily, I usually use an, uh, an external keyboard uh, that I got used at one of the uh, local shops here. Um, and so I, I use that with the, the MacBook setup further away from me. But whenever I use the MacBook uh, keyboard, it's terrible. I spend most of my time deleting what I just wrote rather than uh, actually being productive. Which is part of the reason why I got the iPad, so I could sort of have the secondary um, device just in case. Uh, and that uh, I do think this year, if not next year, will be uh, time to uh, sort of upgrade some of the technology that I have available moving forward. Because the stuff that I have is getting a little bit older and it just needs to be updated. Sadly, if you're going to do media publications and stuff like that. Because I was thinking, like, do do I need to do this? And I'm like, well, I don't really want to expend the money. But if I, I if I do need another computer, if I'm still going to keep on doing this stuff, uh, if 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 it was like, well, then you know, make that sort of allowance for the money, and then that way it'll be done and you'll be good for another couple of years. We hope. All right, so sneak little uh, coons they are, aren't they, on both sides? of the ocean what is this the russians are still able to send oil to the united states via italy so the u.s ban on oil products is, is on oil pro is on oil 
not on refined oil products. So this one, Luke Oil, this Russian company, uh, is uh, sending all of its uh, oil to Italy to this little company that is refining it and then shipping all of that refined oil to the United States, or, you know, shipping a portion of that to the United States. The Wall Street Journal has a, uh, a little uh, video on the uh, how the, the, basically the sanctions are, the, the Russians are, are sidestepping them. Now, very easy to blame the Russians. I don't think it's the Russians. This is the United States, this is the, 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 the polis, the politics uh, in um uh, the United States, knowing that this was going to happen. This is the the government's, uh, the government in power. This is the powers that be. They knew that they could be stepped around. They, this is this was done in an effort to appease the masses, to make a, a face of doing something. That's it. They knew that Russia would sidestep it, that there were ways around it. Uh, same like with the, um, what do you call them, the tariffs? On, on China, put on by the United States, uh, by Trump, that the Democrats just shit all over. And now they haven't repealed them, but at the same time, they're not, I mean, are they really affecting very much? Because there's other ways to get around them. So this was talked about, again, the Wall Street Journal did a, a special on that one. Uh, that was all the, the big rage in the media a couple of years ago. Anyway, um... I do owe you an apology. Sorry, I didn't get out uh, last night's episode early because all my assisted connection devices were just not doing well. I'm not sure if this is a battery issue, a Wi-Fi issue, or an assisted connection device issue, which means I'm going to look into getting a, uh, a dedicated line, basically, which um, actually shouldn't be more expensive. It might actually be cheaper, and I've never done it before, so this might not work. Uh, but that being the case... I want to try it. I want to see what it's like. I want to see if uh, I can actually do it, to tell you the truth, and then whether or not it's sort of consistent and stable, and then that way I can add this to my skill set of what? It's not like I'm ever going to be an IT guy, ever. Not going to happen. Uh, but uh, So that's that's sort of in the works of some of the things that I'm looking at uh, developing over the, uh, the near to short term. Ah, yes. Today, um, it was a busy day. I had to work today. Got the workout in, both of them, uh, and was thinking this morning, I actually came across this book called Triphasic Training by Carl Cal Dietz, and uh, what is interesting about this book is that he talks about this, how he modified, he was a high school or a college uh, athlete, uh, track and field trainer, and he's credited with this methodology of um, workout scheduling that, uh, and I haven't read the whole book, but uh, I got to, uh, I was reading the first, well, it's about the first hundred pages or so that I'm in, um, in which he talks about the different cycles that the body goes through, and he talks about the Bulgarian uh, deadlifters, or Bulgarian Olympians from the 1960s or 1970s, when the Russians, or the Soviets uh, at that time, because they like to change their names every now and then, because ideas come and go, uh, but uh, or fail, and the Russians dominated the sport, the Soviets dominated the sport, and then the Bulgarians came along, and they dominated for about a decade, and what they had done is they had changed their uh, workout scheduling, 
and they used heavy amounts of anabolic steroids. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's sort of become, he does, he does mention this later on uh, when, um, you know, it explained in what, how the Bulgarians were able to endure the uh, workout regimen that they set forward for them. So what they were doing is that uh, they were basically front-loading their week. So Monday would be a, a, sorry, no, they were end loading. Nope. The Bulgarians front loaded their week. This coach back loaded his week. And the reason why is because when the Bulgarians were front loading the week, so Monday would be super heavy and they would work out like nine times a day or something like that every 45 minutes. Uh, and then Monday would be heavy, Wednesday would be lighter, and then Friday would be the lightest lift. Now, keep in mind, the Bulgarians were using steroids. Okay, so when this coach tried this strategy of front-loading the week, he was finding that the athletes were uh, not producing as well later on in the week. That's one of the reasons is because they weren't, their bodies weren't able to recover uh, in the same way that a Bulgarian steroid user was, was able to recover. So he just shifted the workout by one day. So instead of Monday being a heavy day, he pushed it to Friday. So he pushed it back a day. So Monday becomes a moderately uh, heavy day, moderately intense day. Um, Wednesday becomes high intensity but low volume. And then Friday becomes low intensity but high volume. And the, the purpose behind this is that when you back end, sort of backload this week, you put all of your heavy lifting on Friday, you don't work out on Saturday, Sunday, which gives your body more time to recover. And I was thinking this because I'm going, um, it sounds like a good idea. I ha I don't know if he was working out twice a day. I think it was just after, like after school, I'm guessing that he would do this. They weren't having morning workouts, but I'm not sure. Because I'm going through my normal skip and balls workout this morning. I'm going, why is it I'm always like, am I getting bored with this workout? Am I getting tired with it? Uh, I know that for a fact that uh, the longer I do one type of workout, the less calories I burn. So it's not always a good indication of how effective the workout is uh, if, um, you know, I, I'm not uh, burning as many calories. It could be any number of uh, factors. But in terms of feeling, or it's like, is it even the weather? You know, is it is it demotivating to be, because it's medicine ball. I mean, it's not the warmest thing in the world, right? <laughs> it's plastic, it's vinyl covered. So touching this thing and then when you're letting it sit there and it sits there for 40 minutes before I actually use it uh, out in the cold weather and I can feel my fingers, you know, they're, they're getting all, all uh, uh, roughed up because of this thing. Now, do I keep on doing this workout? Do I modify it? Do I change the day? Do I change the timing? Do I change where I do it? Like, could I do this workout inside? Excuse me. So, uh, and then, so that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is if I'm feeling not burned out, but like heavy on Wednesday, is it because of this that I'm burning myself out on Monday or going too hard on Monday, not giving my body enough time to recover between the Monday afternoon lift session and the Wednesday morning workout session it could be but then I think of the crossfitters and I go well I'm looking at their workouts and 
I don't think my workout are are very different from theirs. My 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 training actually, I take off Tuesday and Thursday, so in that case, I'm not working out as heavy as them uh, as they are because uh, I mean they work out still on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Uh, they might take Thursday off, uh, and Sunday might be an easy day, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday are pretty difficult. Friday, Saturday are pretty uh, pretty intense as well. Uh, and they do have varying levels of intensity uh, throughout the the week. So I don't know. Think about it. It it the one of the reasons why this workout is this way, the scheduling that I have is just because it fits with my workout. Now, if I were to shift it, if I were to shift shift the uh, skipping balls workout to like Friday, then move that Murph that I'm doing. Uh, so this uh, the pull ups, push ups, and squats that I do, and then all the running. If I push that to Wednesday or even Monday. How would that work? How would my body react to it? Something to think about going forward, especially as uh, the winter months, you know, it's going to get colder outside. The wind's going to pick up. Um, so that's that's one demotivating factor already. Uh, but, uh, and it might be that, you know what, even with uh, doing the medicine ball, I might not want to do it outside. Is there something else I could work out outside or do I just bring everything inside? I go for a run outside, then I come back inside and do the workout inside. <sighs> I just don't want to smash anything. That's, you know, three thousand for a gym, or you know, ten thousand for a new computer. Which one's cheaper? You tell me. Um, all right. This uh, also today I was able to get another bit of uh, writing done for this art of or this NaNoWriMo challenge. I'm doing this write a novel or write a book within a month. So I've chosen the art of war by Sun Tzu. Um, I don't know why I've had this fascination with this book for like a long time. I've always just sort of held it as a book that I, I feel like I should read in the original language. Um, simplified Chinese, but not traditional Chinese, although who knows, maybe give it time, right? Uh, but uh, I chose this book as being the one that I'm going to emulate in the writing of my language advice book, my language tip book. I, I don't know... I have yet to sort of decide on the title. The Art of Learning a Language, I think, is going to be like the, is the generic title I'm going with. So I've gone through two chapters already. Uh, I'm a little bit surprised at how quickly I'm able to write everything, um, only because it's... I'm going through it, and there are parts you know, where, where Sun Tzu is talking about, like, you know, destroying your enemy. I'm like, I don't know if you're destroying enemies. Like, what is the enemy when you are a language student, and well, it's not so much that you have an opponent like, you know, a foreigner, it's yourself, it's like procrastination, it's self-doubt, it's, um, you know, I don't have the time, uh, it's, oh, I don't have the right materials, so it's all these sort of excuses that you come up with, that would be the enemy, and one of the things I try to make clear in this book is something that I've talked about before, it's like, you, you, you don't, a teacher can't teach you a language, you learn a language, and a teacher can facilitate your language learning. So this is one of the reasons why I chose the Art of War is because it is sort of a battle in terms of learning a language. It's a it's like a marathon. It's it's a it's a grueling gauntlet of challenges, depending on the language which uh, that you're learning. At the same time, each and every language has its own sort of challenges. Uh, easy parts, hard parts, and you have to be willing to go through it in order to see the success and 
know the language and possibly even know the culture, get to know the people, etc. Right. So this is something that as I'm writing this, going through this this book, Sun Tzu's Art of War, it's sort of making a little bit more sense as I'm actually able to write my my thoughts down um, just to formulate them a little bit better. And this is the first draft. It's going to have to be rewritten for sure. But at the same time, um, I'm actually surprised that it's it's coming together. <laughs> so of all things, uh, you can look forward to that. Uh, hopefully, maybe by the end of November, I might get someone to read it over uh, and uh, have a look through just to make sure it doesn't suck that bad. <laughs> but uh, at the same time, I mean, I don't think this is anything really new to tell you the truth. Uh, matter of fact, I think it's a bunch of obvious observations uh, that uh, either I've made here or someone else has made along the way, and I'm just putting them all into this book and using uh, Sun Tzu's Art of War as a guide, as a structural guide, um, and a bit of motivation and inspiration to, to, to write this content. Uh, yesterday, I mentioned the presidential uh, stock market cycle. So what is this? Now, this thing um, is actually um, part of, if you've ever heard of, the stock uh, stock trader's almanac. Now, you probably haven't. Jeffrey Hirsch is the guy who now publishes it. He took over from uh, his dad, Yale Hirsch, who founded this thing. 60 years ago, a long time ago. And they are actually credited with quite a few different um, uh, aphorisms, uh, su- surprising findings in the market. Uh, among them, um, it is the U.S. presidential election, uh, the Santa Claus rally, uh, and then the best six months hypothesis. So these three things, this this guidebook is sort of this almanac, which is kind of like a guidebook for how the uh, markets will uh, unravel throughout the year. Um, and they I mean, they still publish this thing. You can the the book itself, I think, is like sixty or seventy dollars now. It's pretty expensive. It's printed in China, so I'm not sure if you can get a used copy here somewhere, like off the truck or something. But uh, um, even if you got an older copy, if you bought a an old copy from a couple of years ago, the data doesn't change that much from year to year. And sadly, they do publish a lot of the same stuff. It's not like every edition is a brand new sort of. Um, take on the issue on the thing they reprint a lot of the same data which is kind of disappointing and kind of odd that they would charge the same amount every year for the same data that being the case if you get the subscription to their website i've never done it but if you get a subscription you can also get a trial Um, you can sort of see how much information they generate and produce um, for this uh, almanac anyway so this presidential uh, election basically uh, cycle says that these uh it's it's a good time to follow it's a good thing to follow um and it do, it deals with how the market tends to tank in the first 2 years of a US president uh, sitting US president and the reason is because new president comes in new policies get enacted uh and uh, the market starts to react and the companies start to react to the uh, the the changes in the tax, the taxation, the different policies, um, the different trade situation, as it were, given the the political climate, 
And then the third and fourth year, not only are the companies used to it, but then the government changes focus. And instead of being very sort of, um, you know, critical of uh, companies, they become a little bit more accommodative, usually in an effort to seek re-election. And that's sort of the whole idea is that, so first two years, they're, they're like, well, got the election, don't care, right? We don't have to worry until the primaries, which are in November and coming up uh, very shortly. Um, but the last two years, so the second half of years number three and four of the presidential cycle, this is when the president himself, if he's if he's in his first term, or she, he, it's never been a she, I guess, um, they are they start trying to goose the market a little bit. They try to uh, support it a little bit more, become a little bit more accommodative, uh, and however, whatever else needs to be done to sort of make sure that the returns are a lot better. And the third year, which is what we're entering into, is the best year. I mean, I'm looking at this. Year after the election, plus uh, up 6.7%. Second year is up 5.8%. Third year is up 16.3%. Fourth year is up 6.7%. Now, you're saying it's all up the entire time. Adjusted for inflation. Uh, now, the, it's not like the market just goes straight up and keeps on going up. There are dips. It's that overall, on average, these are the returns uh, that... Uh, are exhibited in in the stock market. So this is a pretty well documented uh, election cycle. It goes back, I think, only eighty years because what happened? Uh, well, no, no. It, it says over eighty years plus. The third year of the presidency saw an average stock market gain of more than sixteen percent. The limited number of election cycles makes it difficult to draw a reliable conclusion about the theory. About the theory. There's over 100 years of data. I mean, I think that's, if that's not enough. Who, who knows? Uh, they do, um, I'm looking at investopedia.com. They also have a little bit of a write-up on the presidential election cycle, and they talk about some of the limitations uh, as well. Um, and that, uh, the but overall, the it, it holds, and it's happened again and again. The orders of magnitude might change, but overall, the psychology of the stock market has been pretty consistent, which I guess might shouldn't be too surprising given the fact that if it's the banks and big money managers that are running the show, which, I mean, I don't think we have to hide that fact, how much are they going to change year to year, decade to decade, in their, their planning? I mean, if they need to you know, hit certain targets, hit, hit certain numbers, certain percentage gains or returns. It's not like they're all chasing the biggest gains in the world. They're chasing, they want companies that aren't going to uh, screw them out of their money, which would mean that they're not getting their nice paychecks, which means they can't buy their Lamborghinis and New York condos. I mean, uh, these guys have jobs that they have to they have rules and regulations in place against them, so they they they're not screwing the little guy either, to, or at least not their clients. And might be some little guys over there that get screwed, but generally these money managers are pretty conservative lot. Uh, you hear about the blowouts and the the big ones that are you know big ego cocky guys, but most of them they're like just chase the banks. You know if you're if you're earning six percent per year on the markets. That's considered pretty good. Dividends, three to four percent from the banks, considered pretty good. Um, and 
you know, the companies they, they buy don't change that much over time. That's why like the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which is one of the bigger markets in uh, in the United States, biggest, uh, bigger, um, what do you call it? exchanges, uh, the, the indices, there we go, index, bigger indexes, not the exchange, New York is the exchange, uh, but the, one of the bigger ex- indexes, that's why, I mean, those those don't get changed very often, they do get changed every now and then, uh, but uh, not, not as much as you think they would, so stock market psychology stays the same, uh, its reaction to politics has been pretty consistent over the years, uh, and it looks like the United States has had a pretty big pull and push on the markets, regardless of how many people around the world want to call the end of the modern economy or the U.S. dollar or whatever. I encourage you to take a look at this for yourself. You decide presidential election cycle based what's what's going on for the stock market. Uh, S&P 500, uh, the NASDAQ, uh, which is a newer uh, index, and exchange, uh, the Dow Jones, and uh, what's the other big one? This is the Russell 2000, I guess. That's uh, pretty big as well. How much do, do do other countries have this as well? London, Hong Kong, Japan. There is another almanac published for the UK. Uh, I don't not I'm not sure if it's still being published, uh, but they also talk about they talk about the seasonality as well of uh, the United States markets. And theirs was a little bit more interesting because they looked at um, religious festivals such as uh, Ramadan and things. But that market is not as big as what's going through New York. Let's just get this straight. So even though there are some other countries that like to talk about how big they are and how important their markets are, there's a lot of money going through New York, uh, a lot of money going through Wall Street, and it's one of the most open markets in the world. So, pays to understand the presidential uh, election cycle, especially as you start hearing more about the, the election rhetoric that goes on. All right, folks, I'm going to leave it there. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Show notes and tracks up on my website, stephenserski.com. Again, sorry for the, uh, the delay in getting out uh, last night's episode. Hopefully, it doesn't happen too much more because, yes, it does aggravate me as well uh, as I have to go to sleep knowing that I have to do one more thing in the morning. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again. Have a good one. Bye-bye.